Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I'm an absolute nerd when it comes to nostalgia. Nostalgic items, things that are older than me. And this has actually been something that I've, I don't know if I want to say I've wrestled with, but it's something that I've done for as long as I can remember. When I was younger, when I was just a little child, I've, I've been raised here in Colorado. I'm a native. And in Colorado, even in Aurora, when I was a child, there were still some open fields. And I would find myself oftentimes heading out to these open, open fields looking for arrowheads. I don't know if anybody in here has done that. Yeah. Looking for arrowheads, man. It's, that was one of my favorite things as a child. And I would be searching and, and scavenging to find any arrowhead. And I thought it was so amazing because if I were to have the luck of finding one or the fortune of finding one, I would have many thoughts go through my head, thoughts along the line of, man, who found this? Who carved it? And did they use it for protection? Did they use it for provision? Did they, did they use it for you know, an ornament. What was it used for? And what were the thoughts going through their minds as they created this arrowhead? And as I've gotten older, my, my nerdiness for nostalgia has changed. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask either of my boys, or if you were to ask my wife, Amy, anytime we're on a drive into town, really anywhere we're driving, it's very often, well, they'll, they'll first start out to tell you that uh, I don't pay attention when I'm driving. It's, I'll admit this. But I will find myself oftentimes saying, hey, check out that truck over there. Or check out that car. Look at that old truck. Look at that old car. And, I, and I'm just amazed by these old cars, these nostalgic things. And as I've gotten even older, my nostalgia, my nerdiness has turned to tools. This one's not all that fashionable. And it looks like it's kind of um, worn down and beat up. And it truly is. This one is actually a tool that I was able to get from my grandfather's farm. This is from my mom's dad. And my mom, her dad, growing up, she had a farm that she grew up on, she worked on, and I had the opportunity to work on as a kid. And growing up, I just had great memories of this. And so when we were there, the last time I was there on the farm specifically, my mom's family was about to lose the farm. And this was one of the tools that my uncle allowed us to go through the the barns and pick some things out. And even now, I find myself, if I'm lucky, to go to an auction or if I have time, or maybe it's even somebody who's moving and they have a farm where they allow me to come in and look through their garage or their shop. And I find myself wandering through all of these things looking for potentially the oldest thing, the most nostalgic. And, and this morning as I'm talking through this, I'm, I'm realizing, even before this morning though, I'm realizing why I like these nostalgic things. God has revealed to me, I love these nostalgic things because of the people and possibly the relationships and the things that were going on when they were being used. So this saw, for example, how many hands, how many of my uncles, how many of my cousins, how many of my grandparents or their friends potentially had their hands on this at one time and they created something. And in that creation, they were having conversations and relationships. 
And if I take care of it well enough, that someday I may be able to pass it down to my children or to their children, and they might have those conversations. So you might be wondering where I'm going with my nerdy nostalgia. We just sang the great I am. So as Pastor Tim has shared, the great I am, this is a name that has been, a holy name that has been given to God, or it's, or it's a name of God's, that has been proclaimed from lips for thousands and thousands of years. Many people before us, thousands and thousands of people have uttered the same, he is the great I am. And here we are this morning singing the same thing coming from our lips that he is the great I am. These words are holy. And so we're in this series, the I am series, in which we're looking at the I am statements that Jesus made that essentially point that Jesus and God are one. And last week, Pastor Tim started this series, and in his week, he talked about Jesus proclaiming, I am the bread of life. And this week, I'm going to be doing the second proclamation from Jesus, and that's going to be found in chapter 8. Pastor Tim's was in chapter 6, so if you'd like to take the chance to turn to chapter 8, whether it's in your physical Bible or in your app, I would, I would encourage you to do that. And while you do that, I want to kind of recap what Pastor Tim talked about. And then I'm going to set the stage a little bit for where we are in chapter 8. Because if, if you notice, Tim was in 6, Pastor Tim was in 6, I'm in 8. There's a chapter in between. And I want to share a little bit about what happened in chapter 7 to paint the picture for chapter 8. So the first thing is, Pastor Tim, last week he said, the I am statements are going to fulfill at least three things. And of those, the first would be that Christ alone is the fulfillment, the perfection, and the completion of an Old Testament image or a prophecy. And so when he made that statement, he shared with us four items up here on the screen. If you were here, maybe you remember. If you were not, I'm going to just point out one that he, kind of, he tended to hover over. And the last one that he hovered on was I am, or manna. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were, when they were fleeing Egypt with Moses, right? That's called the Exodus. That's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. As they were in the Exodus, God provided manna for them every day. This was a supernatural bread, if you will, that would sustain them on a daily basis. And they were told that they could only collect this manna once a day and only enough for that day, unless it was going to be Sabbath the next day in which they could collect for two days, but not to collect anymore that God would sustain them every day. And Pastor Tim then said, for Jesus to make the proclamation, I am the bread of life, he was making the statement that yes, I and the God are one, but I am the bread that will sustain you for eternity. The second thing was that he, he communicated to us that Christ alone is the only one that can fulfill our deepest desires of our heart. That there is absolutely nothing in this world that can do that. And many of us try, and we, we, attain, we try to obtain these things and attain happiness but we are unable to because the only way to do that is through Christ alone. So that was his second point. The third point was that it reveals, and the I am statements will reveal Christ more fully to us in such a way that we would be prompted to worship him more deeply. That if we truly understand who Christ was, we would want to worship him as much as possible and as genuinely as possible. That the knowledge of Jesus as the bread of life 
The life everlasting, more specifically, should excite us and it should propel us into worshiping him more deeply. So that's the recap, Pastor Tim's. To set the background, I want to talk about chapter 7 for a minute. So that's in between what Pastor Tim talked about and what I'll talk about today. In Pastor 7, well, first of all, Pastor Tim encouraged you last week to all read through the book of John through this series. And I'm going to reiterate that. I encourage you to read through that so you come in with a little bit of foreknowledge, maybe, of what's going to be talked about. And you're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you as you're reading through God's inspired word. But in that, I want to talk about chapter 7. And I'm I'm not going to do a lot of detail. The biggest thing is is that Jesus is going about his ministry as well as his his disciples alongside him. And as he's going about his ministry in chapter 7, there's this event that is taking place in the background. And not many of us have probably heard of it. Some of us in here might have heard of it. And it goes by multiple different names. It could be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Shelters. Make sure I emphasize the Feast of Booths, not the Feast of Booths, okay? Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, or Feast of Shelters. There's also the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, or the Festival the festival of booths, or the festival of shelters. Now, this festival, you guys, it's filled with both celebration and remembrance. And that is where they're honoring God's provision and protection for the Hebrews or the Israelites as they were fleeing Egypt. As they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, God was with them for provision and protection. Okay? This festival, it would last for seven days and seven nights. And they would live in temporary tent structures throughout this festival. Here's a more modern example of one where these temporary tent structures, again, they were a reminder of as they wandered through the wilderness because they stayed in these temporary tent structures. And they they were migrant or they were transient. So as they would move, they would take up their tent, go to the next place, put up their tent. And this was, again, a festival to remind them of that time. And it was more importantly to remind them that God himself was also with the Israelites during this time. It, that God was in a tented location called the tabernacle. So this feast, it would also celebrate God's presence with the Israelites as he dwelt with them in their wandering through the wilderness. Now, one of the practices of this festival or of this celebration would be called what's the lighting of the lampstands. I have a picture here of the temple, and in the temple you have a courtyard... This is called the treasury. In this courtyard, you'll see there are four lampstands. And in this festival, every night, those four lampstands would be lit throughout the festival. And it is also said that when these lampstands were lit, that the light was bright enough that it would illuminate the entire city. And it wouldn't be uncommon for those of that time throughout this festival to be reminded of holy scriptures like Psalm 27.1 when those lamps were lit. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Or even Psalm 119.105 where it says, maybe, ah, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. So every night of this festival, priests would light these candelabras or these lampstands, and that light would penetrate the darkness with light all throughout the city. And on that last evening, on the seventh night, 
they would extinguish those lights. And when they would extinguish those lights, the darkness would return. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 8. If you're with me, I'd like you to follow along. I'm beginning in verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And the Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. But Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You do not know where I came from and you do not know where I'm going. I'm sorry. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father, they asked. And Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sins. You cannot come where I am going. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean? You cannot come where I am going. Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You belong to this world, I do not. This is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be, I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. So before we get into breaking down this text, I think it's important as well to see really where this all began. And to do that, I want to read a little bit just from Genesis chapter 1. When God was creating the heavens and the universe, the very first words ever spoken are recorded for us in verse 3 where it says, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. This light from that point forward changed everything. So then we move forward to the book of John, his gospel. And even in his gospel, he begins it with, in chapter 1, he makes a parallel to Genesis chapter 1, where he introduces Jesus as the word and the light. In John chapter 1, 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. 
He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So now we find ourselves again in chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus is in front of these Pharisees and these other individuals who have chosen to listen to him, and he makes this bold proclamation, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now remember, everybody there that's listening, the Pharisees, the religious people, maybe some unreligious people, if you will, they had just finished this Feast of Tabernacles. They're on the end of it. And Jesus is standing in this very courtyard talking to them where those lampstands were just extinguished. And that light is no longer being propelled out amongst the city. Jesus is speaking to the people who had been celebrating and remembering the presence and the provision of God as they were wandering through the wilderness with Moses. They had just done this through their festival celebrations. And ironically, it's these same people who had just spent those seven days remembering, honoring, and celebrating the fact that God had also tabernacled with them, that God was with them that whole time. One of their darkest times in history. Yet, they were staring the Son of God face to face. They had his physical presence, and they were ignoring him as they stared right at him. So, we have Jesus standing there, and he's proclaiming to everybody that's listening in, in ears voice, or in ears reach, I am the light of the world. So these two words, as I was saying earlier, these, just these two words alone, I am, those are spoken together and they are something holy, something dedicated to God. And this is something that's also ingrained in the minds of the Hebrews, the Israelites. These words are used exclusively for the identity of God. And throughout history, God's people knew God. They knew the God, the one true God of the universe, and they knew many of his multiple names. They knew him as Jehovah. They knew him as Yahweh. They knew him as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am. They knew these two words. And Jesus, as Pastor Tim told us last week, he says these two words together, I am, and has eight I am statements specifically in the book of John, in the gospel of John. And those I am statements are to make a connection between him and the Father to point to the fact that he is also God. And it was never accident that Jesus would put these two words together. He spoke these two words knowing the weight and the significance that they would carry. And it was at that exact weight and significance that Jesus boldly claims to this group of Pharisees and all that are listening after they had just experienced the lights of the festival, yet they were living in spiritual darkness. Their hearts weren't there yet. They went through all the practices. They knew all the right things to do. They knew how to look, but their hearts weren't there. And so, so I throw out here this morning, on a Sunday morning, some of us are also there. 
We're here on a Sunday morning. We know all the practices. We know all the right things. We know how to look. But where are our hearts? This this bold I am statement that Jesus makes, it caught these individuals that were listening off guard. It surprised them because as far as they could see, in appearance, this, this man, Jesus, who's right in front of him, he's just flesh and blood, right? He's, he's just a man. And, and as far as they know, up to this point, God had not appeared in flesh and blood. These people, they could physically see, they could physically hear, they could physically touch this man. And as far as they knew or they understood, they would probably think, much like we would if we were there, that Jesus is the son of Joseph, who married Mary and raised him. That's his father. That's the father he's got to be talking about. He's just a man. And maybe he's a man who has enough nerve or is just crazy enough to refer to himself as the I am. Now, the Jewish people, up to this point, they were confident in the knowledge that they were the people of God, right? Even before Moses, there was Abraham who had this covenant with God. And this was a holy covenant, a holy covenant about a nation that God tells Abraham in the Old Testament that you are going to be blessed. And that nation will be blessed through you. It will be a chosen people, a holy nation. God, the great I am, these individuals believed, was associated exclusively with them as the Jewish people. So, When Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world, he's not only testing the boundaries by using the two holy words together just by saying I am, but Jesus is also claiming to be the light to the world. The concept of God being for the world at the time, it was not only an unusual concept for the Israelites, but it was in sharp contrast to how they knew God up till this point. That God was, the God of the Old Testament they believe was exclusively for them. But Jesus is here before them saying, I am. Jesus is saying that he is the light. And then he is also telling them the third thing, I am the light of the world. That Jesus is for all people, for all languages, for all nations. He is for all. And this was a radical statement, but it was consistent with the message of Christ. Now, in the Gospel of John, he wanted to make very clear that Jesus was for all, right? Just a random fact, as I was researching for this, I came across, in the Gospel of John alone, the word world is used 78 times. In the other three Gospels combined, it's less than 15. So, I'm not trying to disparage the other Gospels, because each one of them tells the same gospel, that Jesus came for all. But for John, it was, it was important for him to convey that God came for the world. John wanted the world to realize that God sent his son because he loved the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's going to give his life, or he gave his life for the world. And he offers his love and his gift of salvation freely to the world. The Christian message, or what we call the gospel, it's never been exclusively for any people group. Though 
It's true that Jesus is, is exclusively the only way to God and eternal life in heaven. He provides, Jesus provides the light. He shines it freely and it's offered to everybody. And because of this truth, Jesus made the claim using the analogy of light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Our world has, you guys, we know, this is not a disputable fact. Our world has one source of light. We know it as the sun, right? This sun, it provides light for all people of all backgrounds who speak all sorts of languages living in all nations of the world. Again, undisputable fact. And for those, there's some of us who choose to reject that sunlight. Um, when I was younger, I liked to have my house dark. I wanted the, the blinds dropped. I wanted the shades drawn. I wanted the doors shut. I wanted my house dark. And some of us choose to do that. We close our blinds. We close our door. We put up some darkening drapes. But the thing is, is that none of those things will actually stop the light shining from the sun. None of those actions will cause the light from the sun to not be available to our neighbors. If I close my blinds, that sun is still available for my friends and maybe strangers down the street. And it's definitely available for anybody around the world. It was my individual choice to block out that sunlight. Just like it's our individual choice this morning to reject or accept the light from God's son, the light of the world. The good news of the gospel is that the life Jesus offers for all people everywhere, regardless of your age, your race, your finances, your skill sets, any of the languages you speak, your religion, regardless of any of that, the purpose of the light is the same for every single person. If we choose the light, and we receive it. Let's look at a few more verses. 8, 13 through 19. The Pharisees replied, you are making these claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father, they asked. And Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus knew the truth because he is and he was the truth. Jesus actually claims and the last part of verse 14 that we just read, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from and you don't know where I'm going. This speaks to the heart of those he's speaking to, as I said earlier. They knew all the practices. They knew all the right things to do. And they looked right from the outside. But where were their hearts? These Pharisees, they had no clue where Jesus came from. They had no clue where Jesus was going. At best, again, they would have thought that he was the son of Joseph who married Mary. But the truth of this testimony was based on where Jesus actually, truly came from and where he truly is going. He's going to his heavenly home. And we're even given a picture of that in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 tells us, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are his temple, or its temple, sorry. And the city has no need of sun or moon. 
For the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. So as I started, from the very first book, from the very first word spoken, in one, chapter 1, verse 3, where God said, let there be light, to chapter 8, where we find ourselves today, and Jesus is proclaiming boldly, I am the light of the world, all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation, where we're told, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. There has always been and there will always be light. The temporary light that we experience from our sun, one day that light's going to be extinguished and we're no longer going to need it. The eternal light of heaven, it's going to be more fulfilling. It's going to be more magnificent than we can even imagine. Notice again the connection between God and his son. For the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is the light. His son, Jesus, is the lamb, right? Both of them are shining brightly in this case. Jesus made it very clear to the Pharisees on that day that he and the Father are connected. John continues in verse 20. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Later, Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people asked, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean you cannot come where I am going? And Jesus continued, you are from below, I'm from above. You belong to this world, I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Jesus hints at this fact, not just here in this occasion, but all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus hints at the fact that he will be going away to a place that they would not be able to follow of their own volition, or at least on their own. He's saying, you cannot follow me here on your own. But he did follow it up with, you have a choice. You have a choice to believe. You have a choice to follow. And you have that same choice to be forgiven. And in verse 24, Jesus says, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. In that statement, Jesus has planted a seed that is far more than what they can see tangibly. Jesus has clearly stated this radical truth again that I am the light of the world. This is not temporary, this is eternal. And Jesus said that unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. These words, these words are words of hope for those of us who believe. For us, those of us here this morning who believe that Jesus is the light of the world, that is wor- those are words of hope. But the opposite is also true. Those are words lacking hope, actually condemnation for those who don't believe. But John continues in 25, who are you, they demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man of the, on the cross, then you will understand that I am He. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me. For I always do what pleases Him. Then many who heard Him say these things believed in Him. So in verse 25, their response is the same exact response that every one of us will at some point have to have. 
Maybe we've had it already. And that response is, who is Jesus? And in these verses, Jesus makes it clear. He connects himself to his Father. He alludes to the crucifixion in verse 24 of this reading which will be the final sacrifice. And for so, some of you in here, maybe that sounds a little strange and maybe you've not heard that. But let me elaborate a little bit. Prior to this point, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, in the Jewish culture, they would have sacrifices. They would offer sacrifices for the sins committed by the people, by the Jewish community. And those sacrifices would be animal sacrifices. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be that final sacrifice which is precisely what his father sent him into this world for. But that sacrifice will only make a difference in your life if you believe in Jesus. Again, notice in this last verse, then many who heard him say these things believed in him. It's like the light came on, so to speak. Or some of them. We're not told how many, but it says many came to believe in him. And so we're left with this today. We're in this world, we're filled with physical light, which is also filled with spiritual light. But we know this is true as well. There's no shortage of darkness. Where culture has no shortage of individuals turning their backs on even just Christian values. And that's one thing, but it's far worse. And, more alar- and it should be more alarming that they're also turning their backs on Christ. The darkness of our world, it does not comprehend and it does not embrace the true light. I am the light of the world. God's plan for us, for our lives, is to provide that eternal light that will then transform that darkness inside of us, of our lives, through his son, the light of the world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for um, just over the last two weeks, uh, most specifically how your word has shared with us that you are the bread of life and that if we choose, we can be sustained we can be sustained for eternity and not just today, that if we lean into you and we put our trust in your son and we surrender to him and we follow him, that we're given that bread for eternity. And this morning, as we heard about the light of the world, that your son is also the light of the world, Lord, that that he illuminates the darkness in each one of us. And this morning, there are some of us in here that have some tremendous darkness going on in our lives. And Father God, I pray that your Son, and through your Holy Spirit, that they would have that darkness illuminated and they would come face to face with you. That they might know you as the great I am. We thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.